Welcome back to The Major Lift. It's a thousand degrees in my office and I have sweat going down my knees and that's a way more articulate introduction than what I originally had where I was trying to keep it together, trying to keep it cool and it didn't work. It's really not working. I can feel it going down my spine. I'm not going to turn the fan on because I'm starting to enjoy it, okay? I'm going to suffer through this and so are you. Welcome to The Major Lift with Luke Williams from Dead Letter Circus. I really enjoyed this chat with Luke. He came very highly recommended and it wasn't for the typical sort of gym perspective or the workout or to a health perspective. He just asked, hey, can I talk about some plant medicine stuff? And I was like, yeah, cool, let's do it. I didn't really know what that meant. I was just, I was okay. I just heard that he had some really positive and interesting perspectives on some things that I've been curious about. So if you if you were wanting this episode to be about how many reps and sets of curls you got to do, or you braz, what is a plural of bro? I don't want to say bros, it's too easy. Braz? Eh, someone comment in wherever you want to comment and I'll, um, I'll take that on board as feedback. But yeah, plant-based medicines. Now, I, I kind of wanted to put a disclaimer on this episode, but I'm not going to. And hopefully that piques a little bit of your curiosity because I couldn't help but ask more questions. Even looking at the waveforms of this this particular podcast, <laughs> it's kind of funny to, to see just where Luke really shone through with his storytelling ability. Definitely someone I would love to chat to more in the future. And yeah, I, I can't give a more um, intriguing introduction than that. So I hope this is opening for you because it was opening for me enjoy welcome to dj luke williams first day on the radio uh, with his with his elaborately planned speaking voice that we've been discussing luke good morning just good morning adrian it is still just morning how's the coffee it was amazing it was freshly brewed as oh. it is most mornings yeah we get some it's funny, we actually get our coffee from uh, Roger McPhillips, who was our old drum tech, who has drum tech for COG, he started out with, and Butters and Carnival, and yeah, he now works for All Press Coffee. This is, I'm in no way affiliated with the company, so. <laughs> <laughs> but he does he does send us their beans, and yeah, so we, we have fresh beans every morning I- to, Yeah. I'm not affiliated either, but if he hears this and wants to give me some some beans, I would say I'm affiliated. <laughs> Although I'm I'm doing no caffeine at the moment, and it is like I, I don't know I, if I showed you my drink before. I heard this. You're on some dank ass herbal tea. I'm just making stuff up now. You know when okay. you're a kid and, and you just mix things up. This is pretty much what this is. Okay, it's got it's got an interesting color, like um like a dehydrated piss or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what I'm going for as far as the color <laughs> spectrum goes. Dehydrated okay. piss meets dehydrated <laughs> piss. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so how come how come you are off the coffee? If I may ask. Okay, that is purely because I found myself having five. For anyone that can see, this is like a lead. This is a stein because I'm viciously into my iced coffee, and I was having okay. four, five a day. Right. It, not. It was not, getting out of control. Not those ice breaks from the the servo. Definitely not. No, just so just black iced coffee. Okay, sure. What words do I say? Do I say iced black coffee? Coffee that's iced? No, I know, I know what you're saying. It's, yeah. I mean, it's vicious. It is vicious. So after 
after coming back home and trying to get back into life and just trying to escalate my energy levels, I'm like, well, how about I just do it with coffee Artif- and then artificially, yeah, yeah. But those three thirty drops have been very rough. Oh, the crash! The crash is um is 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 not cool. Yeah. Okay. So good drum joke. I like that. Now we can segue <laughs> with that. <laughs> so I, what I want to sort of start off with is is to give people a gauge of what got you into just drums in the first place. Because I think it's a special type of child. I think I read somewhere you were about 10 or something. 10? Yeah, correct. Yes. Now the correct stalk. Yes. Yeah. You've done well there on the research. Um, I'd, um, I guess I was just drawn to the physicality of it. Um, because obviously, uh, you know, if, if you watch a band, the drummer is obviously physically doing them. There's the most movement coming from the drummer. And I guess I was always drawn to that and drawn to, I mean, R- Ricky Rocket was my first big drum crush from Poison, the band Poison. I'm not sure if you're old enough to know of, know of Poison. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen enough Poison to get my little yeah, hair excited. Like he used to have the big sort of fluoro DW double bass drum kits with big, like, you know, fluoro green racks. And it was just, it looked like he was piloting some kind of, you know, weird spaceship. And I guess I was drawn to that, like the look of it. And, you know, he's, you can see his arms flailing about and making noise. And yeah. So I was just, I was just captivated by that as a, as a kid. Could you imagine just saying to your bandmates now, just looking at them in the eyes and say, Hey, have we got a, have we got room for another bass drum? Dude, I've joked about I've joked about it for many years, and um, it's just it's just the, the I would really love it, but the but the practicality of it is just um, is just shit house really. Like I've got to build up when we tour Australia, like the the tour we just did, we've just come off. Like I've got to literally build up some of the rises in these venues because they don't accommodate my kit, which is at the moment just a single bass drum with a du- with a double pedal. And I've still got to build these rises up, do you know what I mean? So if I had another bass drum, I'd be having to build up even more rises. <laughs> this, is by, this, this is by putting whatever we can find in the venue around the drum riser to try and get it the same height, you know, to give it an extra foot or two. So people can see uh, the, sh- the real show and not pay attention yeah, to the I'm, cowards down the front. <laughs> I mean, I kind of hate not having a riser now. Like once you get used to it, it's like once you go, once you go there, you can't go back. Just looking and, uh, at asses all day when you're down on the floor level. Just, yeah, you, yeah. You kind of, it's, I, I kind of like the look of, of the drummer being, you know, of our head height being the same head height as the, the front line. So I want that too. Sometimes, and also as you know, as a guitarist, you get to turn around and look up to your mate who's not screwing up, so you don't look bad. If you screw up, we're all screwed. This is it. This is it. As a this collective, <laughs> and you can jump, you can jump up on the riser too, and do jumps off the riser. So it benefits I, kind of everyone. I can't. <laughs> I'm just going to stop you right there. I, I actually can't. My, my Achilles are really shot. Okay, So sure. any sort of running or jumping as much as I really want to, out of, out of the question. Have you All actually, right. have you experienced any injuries as far as re- related to drums and things like oh, that? I, oh, not related to drums, but I have, I've got um, an ongoing left knee injury, which is, um, I think it's a cartilage injury. In there, I, I, I actually did it playing badminton, of all things. It sounds quite oh, lame, cool. but um, and um, it feels like sometimes if I get into a, um like a squat position, my some some cartilage will catch in my knee. So I think I need surgery, but at the moment it's I can get by. I've just got to 
sort of adapt a little bit. Well, I have adapted to moving that that knee, and um, I've got you know I can kind of get around it most days. Some some days it still goes out, and I've got to kind of pop it in like le- le- what is it, lethal weapon? Yeah, <laughs> um, Mel Gibson, where he's got to pop his shoulder back in when it goes uh-huh. out. I've kind of got to do a, a a slightly less exciting version of that on my knee. I mean, I'm, I can't let this slide. Before we go back to to, to young Luke, I, yeah. you you heard it during badminton. You got to set up the the scene for this. Oh, it's it's lame as we were playing badminton in the backyard without a net, like just hitting the shuttle <laughs> shuttlecock back and forth. And I've I've missed someone who whoever my opponent was hit the, the shuttlecock off to my right. I think it was, and I just had to go and pick it up. And literally, as I was walking over to get it, my knee did this weird pop and I was like oh that's that's kind of interesting and then I couldn't straighten my leg out and you had to hop into the the lounge room and sit there for an hour until my knee went back in so and it's just been like that ever since it's sort of just if I get into the wrong position it just something pops and then I've got to get into it now I've figured out I've got to get into the prayer position so sitting on your knees if you can envisage Mm -hmm. that yeah, and yep, then it yep. just it kind of pops itself back in, and um, and I'm now I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, take take us back to to this ten year old attitude you had towards towards your idols and things like that. So the physicality is pretty impressive. I, I have to admit, mm. I'm sort of a bit bummed. I'm I'm not a drummer because the idea of just especially rock drums is just cath- kind of has a catharsis to it. Like after you've finished, you can't help but be ruined when you've played those really tough songs and I think it's it's good especially for kids to do that were you doing mm. other sort of physical things around playing drums yeah I was a little bit of a hyperactive kid so you know I was always skating or playing football or cricket or yeah I was always doing something super like just to get the energy out of my body because I was I had a lot of energy as a kid I mean I guess I still do have a lot of energy um, which is you know the drums really helped with that and getting that out when I was younger. I'd and the coordination was was pretty easy for you to master? Yeah, I mean, I was always pretty quick at picking things up too. Like, um, So that was, yeah, it was kind of just a natural thing for me really, get, getting into the drums and I just gravitated towards that far more than anything else. So, Was your early practice structured in any particular way? No, it wasn't until I hit about fifth. No, it would have been 14 where it started to get really quite regimented and um, I understood the um, the importance of a consistent practice routine. When I was a kid, I was just kind of you – know, I didn't understand fully what it took to sort of get it to the next level. And I mean, I didn't really want it to go to the next level back when I was that age either. Like it was just a fun thing. But then when I was 14, I'm like, fuck, right, I, I think I actually want to, you know, make a good go of this and maybe do this for a – a career, so then I kind of just innately understood what it, that, that would take a lot of hard work and a lot of hours in the room. You know? So you actually deliberately set out your week that young. I mean, that is that is pretty admirable. For I mean, I was too busy playing Ultima Online at that point in my life. Yeah, okay, right. To know what to do as far as structure goes, did you set, did you go Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Or I Wednesday? mean, I kind of just wanted to do it, you know. And it's that old saying: if, if if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. So it wasn't kind of like it wasn't like a chore. Like my my parents were pushing me to practice the piano for eight hours a day because they thought it was something that I should be doing. I just kind of wanted to do it and 
I kind of wanted to make a career out of it. And so it's kind of just, I just fell into it. Every afternoon I'd get home, my, my, my routine was I'd get off the bus, I'd walk home, I'd have wheat bix or whatever my afternoon tea was, you know, it was quick. And then I'd just um, jump in the room until mum, because mum would get home around six o'clock and kick me off the kit because I would just play in my home. Obviously, I didn't have a studio back then, so she'd come home, kick me off the kit after, you know, would have been two and a half to three hours that I would get in most afternoons, yeah. And that was just jamming. So did you have mag- uh, magazines or did you have... Mag- yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'd have magazines. I would just jam along to my favourite records, which um, I think by the time I had that practice routine, that was Pantera, and I was right into... um my metal by by that that stage, you know, I'd got off glam rock and I was into the head. <laughs> you'd I was, wind, I was, <laughs> with the help of Pantera, you'd wind yourself off glam rock, right? Yeah, glam rock's kind of like the marijuana of um of music. Then I was on the Pantera, which was like the really heavy stuff, do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> very, it was a, very, it was a very gateway. Much so. It was a gateway yeah. um music. Pantera is a gateway into making angry metal faces <laughs> for no reason when you like music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't do that with poison. You don't you don't grow up listening to glam music and you fr- start frowning. No, because it's all about having a good time, Glenn, isn't it? You know, like poison would, the po- poison were just singing about getting chicks and you don't need nothing but a good time. You know, they weren't, they, they weren't singing about anything too heavy, but then you, you listen to Pantera and they were singing about some, some darker stuff, those guys. Do you, do you find yourself going back to Pantera and just sort of feeling a bit, I get a bit sad going, oh, you guys are really pissed off. And <laughs> do you reckon they got it all out of their systems? Oh, you have to, don't you? Like, I guess when it, when Phil, when he was writing those lyrics, would have been, you know, young. And when you're young, you're a bit angsty. There's all these weird emotions and chemicals coursing throughout your body. So I'm sure yeah, he's those. settled down. I'm sure, I, know, I know I've settled down a great deal, you know, but mm. I still go I, I still go back to Pantera. It's funny, um, the latest tour that we just did, I'll, I'll probably keep bringing this up a bit, but our front of house guy, Tony Bryan, would – Sound he would EQ the system every afternoon with um, far beyond driven. So oh. it was nice. It was nice just having that you know blasting and it's a little reminder of of you know where you came from and Pavlovian response too. You you are going to get hyped if you listen to that. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's it's funny that like a, you you would you'd be aware of this how a. a a particular album or song can transport you back to a time in your life when you were, you know, younger. And it can almost give you that feeling back of when, you know, how you felt at that age when you were listening to that music. So it's quite, yeah. Yeah, it was good. Uh, oh, no, I did a big drive yesterday. Exactly that. I put on yeah. some a Skylit drive. That is an emo band. And I was like, yeah, okay. I feel that, guys. I'm really feeling that. <laughs> Same here. Skylit Drive. I vaguely remember this band. It's pretty trashy. I really like it. Okay. <laughs> so you got into, so you were sort of just screwing around and you were developing your chops and, and things like that. Mm. So that is a pretty big chunk of, of a musician's life that it is sort of hard to recall some moments of definite progress. But did you feel there was a, a, a day or an hour or, or a moment where you just, where you went, I can do that thing now that I've always thought about doing? Yeah, no, look, I always find my progress with anything's very gradual and it's never like a, a sort of a light bulb moment. I mean, in saying that, like, do you get these little nuggets of like, 
Oh, like where, where the penny will drop on something. Yeah, but, I mean, there'll be so many, you know, there'll be so many little versions. Like there'll be nothing profound for, for me. Oh, there was there was nothing ever profound where, where I, I was like, oh, I can finally double, I can do 16th double kicks at 200 BPM or whatever. Like there's always little nuggets of, oh, fuck. Now I get I get how to do that thing or... Yeah, but there, and but there, in saying that, there's never a moment I think in a musician's life where they go, "Oh, I'm done. I've discovered it all." Do you know what I mean? Like if any sort of decent musician, it's it's that thing of um that it's almost like a spiritual um, journey of like the more you know, the more you realise that you don't know. Do you know what I mean? And you'll never be truly satisfied. I don't think with your with your progress. Mm. But that's that's the that's the kind of curse that any decent artist will live with is like that's the the driving thing that will push them forward to be better. Do you know what I mean? Is having that um, high expectation of themselves or oh, what, what am I trying to say here? Yeah, that that almost dissatisfaction with the level that they're currently at, and you're always trying to. It's like I use the analogy of you're climbing a mountain and you're trying to summit, but the summit just keeps growing up do you know what i mean like into the sky and you never actually reach the summit but you you know it's fun to keep trying for it that's that intrinsic sort of value you need to be able to sit down and, and play stuff and and go i have no idea how to do that hmm. i'm doing um four against six practice a lot at the moment just just okay. on guitar because i've just never sat down and practiced that polyrhythms yeah, just yeah. pretty basic accenting, just all yeah. down picking and yeah. trying to make it sound different and exciting. I've stumbled upon some sounds where I went, oh, I think I actually get a whole bunch of songs that I've even played live a little bit more intimately and you, you have that confidence to output it and hopefully someone else totally gets it without knowing the name of it because it's irrelevant, right? You've you've mm. played enough shows to know that people in the crowd aren't going to, uh, apart from that, you know, one guy with a notebook who's like, hmm, yes, <laughs> Williams has dropped one eighth note on the ninth. You know, there is, is, we've all got a memory of at least one of those guys, right? The I call them the super critics. Yeah, super yeah. critics. <laughs> Just middle finger right in front of you. I'm going. <laughs> so you got into uh, teaching, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been teaching since I was about 20, 21. Do you still do it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I've um, I don't do heaps of it anymore. It's mainly um performing, but I've got a studio in Stafford in Brisbane that I've got to keep the rent paid on. So I just sort of I kind of have enough students to keep the rent paid and give me a bit of extra pocket money. It's not something that I want to sort of be because I really like my spare time, and I, I I think if I really went balls deep into it, I'd and got thirty to forty students, I'd just be maxing all of my time out, and I really enjoy my sort of time to do other things as well now at this mm. point in, in my life. So, and I find it's kind of sucks to say, but I find it like, like a, if I'm doing massive chunks of teaching, it can kind of stifle my creative um, output on the drums. Like I kind of find like, I don't want to be in my practice routine um, if I've been teaching all day. Do you know what I mean? So, so, so not, as you get older, you've you've sort of found yourself knowing full well that your time is pretty important. 
Absolutely. I think, I think everyone sort of kind of discovers that and you kind of, the older you get, the, the you realize the, uh, the, 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 the time that you've got on this planet is finite. I mean, when, when you're a young kid, you think that you're going to live forever and you don't sort of understand the, the, um, concept of your own mortality sort of thing. So I'm, I'm turning 40 this year. So I figure I'm about halfway done. So it's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sort of, <laughs> you're going to say something then. I'm actually hiding my surprise. I didn't even bother to check how old you were. Yeah, yeah, it's 40, 40, the big four, eh, this year. So, yeah, I figure halfway done. So you do realise that. (laughs) 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 You you know, I've got 40 years left. I don't kind of maybe don't want to be holed up in in a teaching room for, let's say, you know, an eighth of that or a sixteenth of that, whatever the, whatever the, Time who knows it, what breakdowns are? Who fucking knows what yeah, time is? Eight sixteen. Who gives a shit? <laughs> so, and as I get older, I've got other things that I'm interested in too. But I mean, drums will always be the first thing. But yeah. So you were you were. I mean, I, I've done a a large chunk of teaching before. I was doing fifty kids a week. Wow. Uh, it was. It was, you're absolutely right. It is horrifyingly stifling for someone that is always trying to leave what they're doing. I'm, I'm always, I'm always trying to get to the next thing. Mm. And I found that in teaching those kids, one of two things was going to happen. I'd either be bored um, by the, by the lack of progress, which is more projecting, or I'd be totally inspired by a kid coming in. You don't see them for seven days and you come back in and you're like, you're taller. You've got a weird looking beard hair now. And also you can do this. <laughs> You can do this thing and they're just like, oh, I still suck at it. And you go, oh, I remember that, that mm. internal mechanism saying still not good enough. And I think, yeah. do you get that from, from the students that you still have from time to time? Absolutely. Oh, there's, there's, there's awesome moments of satisfaction. In, and actually, like, you would realise that teaching someone else actually teaches you a lot about the instrument as well in having to verbalize the concepts and it gives you a deeper understanding of, of what you're doing definitely. And to see kids that the ones that, you know, the special ones that give a shit and put the time in, it's like, fuck yeah, that's awesome. You can see the next gen coming up and, and that's amazing. And, you know, I've had, I've had some of my students surpass, surpass my level now. Do you know what I mean? And it's great to see, like there's one guy in particular who I'll, who I'll mention, Benny Shannon, who's a great Brisbane drummer, one of the one of the best in in Brisbane, if not you know getting towards one of the best in Australia now. Who was he was like he was not a particularly um, amazing student. Like he, I, I didn't find him particularly gifted on the drums when he would come in, but just his work ethic and the passion that he had and the, the work that he put into the, the craft has just, to, to see him now, it's just fucking mind-blowing how far he's taken it. And that's just through just pure hard work, just putting in the hours in the room and just loving it. And it's a lot to be said for, you know, for hard work. You know, it's that some people get offended by the, the term, oh, he's so, you know, that they're so talented using talent as sort of dismissing in some hard work that someone's put in by saying that they've got a natural sort of pension for something. And, you know, you you see some kids that are naturals 
and they don't have to work as hard, but then you see the kids who aren't naturally gifted, but they just fucking work so hard and they can overtake the, 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 um, you know, the naturally gifted ones. So I think hard work will always trump talent because I've seen the really naturally gifted ones not give a shit and they don't really go anywhere. You know, it's the, like you really get the special special kids when, when A, they're, they're naturally gifted and B, they put the fucking hours in, do you know? That's when you get the really special ones. You've got to have that, that, that combination, I feel. That's, that kid who's a good mixture of, of introvert and extrovert, that can that has the honesty to say, "Hey, I feel this when I play this, and I can't do it properly." And then extroverted enough to be able to perform it as well. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It takes a special person. Those those kids are absolutely awesome. You're right. And Ben, right? Ben Is Shannon. He, yeah. He's in a Brisbane band. He's in multiple know. bands. Um, the, the one you, you, that you might know would. Um He's Kodiak, Kodiak Empire. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He is legit. Super, super, <laughs> super proggy. Um, Ben, and he's just a fucking monster. Arguably so. too proggy, too many notes. <laughs> ben, no you heard of half-time, dude. <laughs> Have you heard of Phil Rudd from ACDC? Yeah. Um, <laughs> simmer down, Ben. So when you, when you were, what, you would have been 29, I'm having a guess now at timeline, 29 when you started touring with DLC? Yes. Dead Letter Circus for anyone who didn't yeah. get the introduction. Yeah, 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 yeah 29. Where I, what I was jumped happening into, in your life? Um, I was with another band called called who was my main focus, my main original focus at that time. And uh, Melodicy had gigged with Kim and Stu's other band, Kim and Stu being two of the members from DLC. They um, they had an, a band previous to DLC and my older band was gigging with them. So we kind of knew each other and DLC's drummer left because he, he didn't like touring and they said, can you come and do this um, this tour? The first tour was with with Cog actually for the What If tour, and it was just a coming on as a live session player, getting paid, you know, on a per show basis, and it just sort of worked. And I ended up joining the band because I, I enjoyed the music, I enjoyed hanging with the guys, and yeah, it kind of just kind of start, started the snowball after after that. I mean, the band already had a profile when I joined. Like, they were already doing sort of 400 cap rooms in each capital city. So they, they had sort of a decent following. What but, was um, your um, lead up to that tour like? Do you, I mean, if you hadn't oh, really I toured mean, I, like that. I mean, I, I, I had a week to prepare for that tour um, for 45 minutes of music. So, I mean, it wasn't super critical, but... It, you know, I, I kind of had to work my butt off to get it to that level. I mean, for my own expectations, of course, you know, we keep, we'll probably keep arcing back to this own self expectation thing. Like, I, I have quite a high expectation of myself. So, I mean, I locked myself in the room for eight hours a day for the, for the week leading up to that to make sure that the set was, you know, as flawless as I could get it. Um, my neighbors fucking hated me. They, they, they started a petition. <laughs> <laughs> to get me to get me to stop playing because at, at that time I was living on the Sunshine Coast and I was just playing in my garage. I didn't have a studio then. It wasn't until I moved to Brisbane that I got the the drum studio where I could play every day um, in the industrial estate. But um, yeah, so that was a that was a heavy build up to that to 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 that tour. And that first show sure. was was um, worth the eight hours a day. Do you think? Absolutely. I always like to. I always like my shows to be automatic. 
um, as in like everything's muscle memory and not thinking because I think thinking just ruins a show. If you're thinking about what you're doing, you're not in that sh- – you're not in the moment of that show. You're not um, – yeah, you would realise this as a touring musician that the most fun you can have on stage is where it just becomes this automatic thing where you, your fingers just move or, you, you know, your feet and hands just move and you're not thinking, you're just enjoying yourself because, I mean, thinking's kind of the enemy of – of, of performance, I think, uh, a little bit. You just want it to be flowing. The, the one show that I found to be a disaster on my first tour was three shows in because mm. I started to think, what if I'm screwing up and I just can't hear it? I had a really bad monitor mix. Oh, okay. I was gone. I was, it, took me a, it took me an entire <laughs> song to even be like, why, what am I, and you know when you go through those weird things in your head, like what am I doing here? Why am I playing this music? Why did I play guitar? I'm really yeah. hungry. It's just anything but what you're doing <laughs> yeah, seems yeah, yeah. to be better than actually playing in that moment. And then you, know, you finish the song and you just look around, everyone else is having a good time. <laughs> mm, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, um, it's, if you're not present, it's just um, it's, it's game over. What, what me, is your anyway. what is your diet on tour at the moment, and and what was it like um, when you first started touring? My diet, mm. um, I'd say my diet suffers probably a little bit on tour, just because um, of time restrictions and um, maybe transport restrictions, and not being able to get to supermarkets and so forth. So you know, you're eating chicken parmigianas, like, you know, obviously a lot of venue food, the food that the venue's serving up. Like we we now have, have on our riders fruit platters, vegetarian sandwiches because we like to sort of – we like to be as healthy as we can, but, I mean, there's a lot of drinking that goes along with, with touring. So I'd definitely say that the diet suffers. It's not my usual diet that I have at home by any stretch what of is, the imagination. And what's that sort of like as a contrast – Oh, I say mainly vegetarian at home with a bit with a with a bit of chicken. Um, pretty rarely I'll have red meat at home. Um, I sort of take a lot of supplements at home: um, maca powder, cacao. I'm on the Vital Greens every day. Do you know what I mean? Turmeric, yeah. Go go yeah. Vital Greens because I guess my yeah my my veggie. I don't eat heaps of of vegetables. So I try I try to su- supplement with Vital Greens for that. Do you reckon I should have Vital Greens smoothies instead of coffee and just see what happens? I'm just this thing yeah. is pretty shit. I'm 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 two thirds of the way through this, and, it, and even though it's cold and it's hot it's in here, I'm, I'm struggling. It's very yeah. big, dude. You familiar with compensating? That is something that I am doing with it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> dude, you, dude, you, dude, you can try. Have you tried cacao? Like maybe doing you can do a cacao shake. With like I do berries most mornings. I'll do a, um, a banana berry, um, vital green shake with like chia seeds and stuff. So you can Sounds maybe just good. go go cacao in that. Like cacao will kind of give you that same coffee mm. buzz. My my maybe? partner. I can hear her for all the way from her work being like, yeah, she's echoing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's a fiend for that. Yeah. So, dude, get, get the, um, get, get the Nutri bullet out or the Nutri Ninja or whatever. Oh, mine's covered in mold, man. It gets used oh, every day okay. and I don't clean it nearly well enough. Okay. Poor little thing. So on that, that tour diet is something that as far as if you were going to improve it, cause I mean, a writer is obviously a pretty, pretty huge part of that, what you get given. And, and for those of yeah. those, 
those those of you who haven't really experienced that side of it, it can be pretty varied depending on what you've asked for. Yes. I'm sure you've noticed that as well. Yeah. So what, what are you sort of moving forward, I suppose, hitting that, that halfway point before you die? I mean, these yeah. are your words. These are your words. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what, what, would you cha- what would you change on your rider to sort of help facilitate, um, you know, if, they, if everything was met, to help facilitate the healthiest possible touring life you could have? Um, I, it's a good question. Yeah, I guess, like, just probably I'd just try and get the stuff that I have at home. Do you know what I mean? Like, I guess I would try and have, like, vegetables and... And, you know, lean chicken or maybe, you know, for dinner most nights rather than a parmigiana that's crumbed and chips to go on the side of that and, do you know what I mean? Like just cutting down pub food basically because, I mean, you do this. I mean, part of the reason why you do this on the road too is to, to save to save money as well. If the, if the venue is going to be providing meals, then you don't have to buy your meals. You don't have to borrow the crew car to go down to the shops and then bring the food back to the venue after you've sound checked and prepare it. It's just like there's all of these facets that you'd be aware of that sort of prevent you from being in your normal routine and especially like your dietary routine, which is another, you know, we've got many routines throughout the day, that diet being one of them. Um, I like, yeah. I'd probably get. I'd probably drop the alcohol. You know, if I was to be super concerned about my health, and I have thought about this a lot about not drinking, but then whenever I'm on tour, I always just fall back into that habit of drinking. I mean, do you drink when you're on tour? Um, I've gone pretty hard line. I mean, I, full full disclaimer: if I was going to pick a sort of a extra body experience on tour would not be alcohol because I just get bloated. It feels a bit nasty. So sure. generally someone's like, do you want to share this particular thing? <laughs> I, yeah. I would much rather do that. You know, like okay. uh, sure. in, in Europe and stuff, if someone had a joint, I'd just be like, yes, please. That would be much nicer. And then next thing I know, my good habits are kicking in automatically. Like I'm just sitting in the middle of the bus, just eating a little salad by myself. Sure. Yeah. And everyone else is out on the cold streets, you know, just like drinking beers. And I'm like, can't wait to have my salad tonight. <laughs> so, so you so, aren't, so you, you aren't drinking on tour? Really? No. I, and I okay. have trouble finishing one just because of that nasty carbonated feeling. Okay. Sure. Was, are there non-carbonated beers, or is that just trash? Um, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> There's a specialist out there. I'm sure will probably comment something about yeah, it. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I would rather not, if possible. Gatorades. Yeah. Maybe? Okay. Look, I mean, the the, the alcohol. I, I guess I'm burning it off most nights. Any 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 extra uh, like sugars that I'm getting from the beer. I'm burning them off most nights. So I'm not seeing any weight gain when I'm on tour because I'm like the recent tour that we just did, I'm mentioning mentioning it again, we were doing 90 minutes most nights, which is quite a big set and that's quite high intensity the whole time. So, I mean, I'd be burning a lot of calories in that show. Have you measured it? I haven't measured it though. I would be very curious to measure my my output. You've got to do it. Yeah, yeah. Because I haven't. I keep thinking about doing it as well and I'm like, why the fuck do I keep putting this off? It's so interesting. Mike Mangini did it. I've brought it up like a thousand times on this podcast. Mike Mangini did it and he, I'm going to double check the facts. Everyone everyone out there can just tune out for this, but he's playing 90 to 120 minute sets, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. You would would think at least two hours with Dream Theater with with their back catalog. Um, How many calories does Mike Mangini use? This just became like a Joe Rogan style podcast, except I have to research my shit. Yeah. We we don't, we don't have Red Band to do our, 
research for us or whoever Joe uses now. Uh, all right, here we go. So on the the 17th of September, it doesn't say the year, that's not really helpful. He burned 544 calories just playing Metropolis. I think it's Metropolis Part 2, Part 1. That's one song. That's one song. That sounds like a lot of calories for one song. Hey, what's he doing? <laughs> His arms weighted like Goku or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I mean, I would like. Speaking of calories, like I would need some kind of uh, equivalent, like food weight equivalent, like so, so like a thousand calories equals uh, a Mars bar, or a thousand calories equals a steak or something. I'd need like some kind of equivalent in food, I reckon. Ah, uh, there is there is more information on this thing, by the way. Okay. It's for the it's for the entire set playing the entirety of images and words, but the most oh, okay. intense song was Metropolis Part One. Uh, so, okay. I mean, Good. that being said, five hundred and forty four calories in an hour playing music. The, I mean, I think it's sort of frustrating that that drummers aren't considered a type of athletes. Why there aren't more things just made for you guys to help with your joints and your ligaments? Yeah, blows my mind. Oh yeah, dude. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, before I go on tour, I'm running every day to get my cardio well up because I've got to sing as well onto it. And I've, if I'm not fit, my oxygen's going to be down. I'm going to sound like shit. Um, so yeah, it does. It takes a lot of, of, of fitness. If you're going to play at high intensity, obviously like rock, rock or, you know, metal music or prog being some of the most sort of energy intensive styles of music. I mean, mm-hmm. if I was playing funk, maybe, I'd, you know, halve that, Unless, unless, unless you're doing, unless you're like really funking just, out, you know? just funking out super hard, yeah. <laughs> like you've got to wonder how many calories you've seen this clip on on the internet. You know, this drummer's at the wrong gig. He's playing a ZZ Top <laughs> cover. Like, <laughs> yeah. how many calories is that guy burning? Do you know? Yeah, there needs to be an AB here, like him versus Bernard Purdy or something like that. What yeah. either of them would burn an entire set? Sure, yeah. But Bernard Purdy somehow is like what he's playing is so tasty. He's got he's got a calorie surplus by the end. <laughs> the chops are so tasty. He's like plus six hundred calories. He's plus six hundred. <laughs> so that's good. I like it. <laughs> so I mean, uh, I one thing that we're going to add to our rider, um, we're going to add twelve hard boiled eggs. Really, like legit. Yeah. Okay. Legit. Yeah. Because, I mean, it takes two seconds for someone to actually prepare that, really. Yeah. Um, we lucked That's out great. in Europe. I mean, obviously in Australia, they'd just be like, yeah, here's some raw eggs, you dickhead, off you go. But in, in what, Europe. What, what are you, you going to do with raw eggs? Like, <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're rocky, like, you know, really, what are you going to do with raw eggs? Yeah, free raw egg night at uh, at the Caligula's Horse Show tonight. Please don't throw them. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> oh, that could be for you to throw up the crowd. If it's a shit crowd, you just start egging the crowd. Come on, Sydney. You know you can do better than this. Pow, pow. Sorry, ben, Sydney. And then buddies. there's like, I can, just, I can just see the headline, Ben turns on crowd. Uh, no, it'll be something like anti-vegan band turns on crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean, um, mo- moving through that, um, in, in the entirety of your career in DLC, have you had mm. some, I mean, the answer to this is yes, but what was sort of the, the most um, intense uh, pivot in, in your life during that time? DLC. Oh, okay, so I, I've got a. I've got a. Tell me about. Parade. I've, got, I've, actually, I've actually got a moment that um that changed my life when we were, we were recording our first album. This is the warning with Forrest the Savile, 
on the Gold Coast at uh, Loosestone Studios, which is not uh, which is not there anymore. But um, Forrester, one night, Forrester said to us during tracking, he goes, have you guys ever tried DMT? And we're like, no, we haven't tried it. We haven't tried this DMT. He goes, We've, you've got to try this. And um, so I called a mate in Byron. D- D- DMT is a hardcore psychedelic for anyone that's not um, versed in psychedelics. And um, I've travelled down to Byron. I've got some of this DMT. We've brought it back to the studio and had a night in the studio. So we've fashioned this vaporizer from a light bulb, took the um, incandescent bulb out, sort of taped a, a bit of garden hose to the top of it, dropped this spice in and proceeded to have the most insanely psychedelic experience of our lives. Uh, and that was uh, like this fork in the road. Like I remember the next day literally going through my phone contacts list, contacting everyone in my phone, uh, telling them about this amazing experience that I'd had on this, on this, um, on this substance DMT and how it's, I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of this before, how, how something like this had had a lid put on it because it was the most amazing thing that had ever happened in my life to that date. Like it was, it was like a religious experience. And I'm I, cracking and I, my knuckles. I've got questions. Yeah, that's right. And I'd gazed into this other like, reality that exists outside of our reality. And I'm like, why has no one told me about this before? And I was just amazed and yeah, that was a definite fork in the road for me, which led so to. Yeah, I'm, I'm just very curious about the. Uh, I'm curious about the actual moment of when you realised that this this had taken effect. I I'm, I really want to know about this. I've never tried it before. I sort of want to try most things once. Mm. But so you 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 put the hose in the light bulb and you breathe it in. You breathe it in, so you roast it, so you vaporize it. It's like a it's a it's, it's a crystal, so it goes. You heat it through the glass. You imagine like sm- smoking a crack pipe. Almost this sounds terrible, but um, <laughs> so you, you heat it. It goes from a solid into a liquid, then it goes gaseous, goes into a gas form, and then you breathe it in. And you try, I guess, with DMT, the um, aim is to get three big lungfuls in, and then that should be enough to send you to the machine elf land. Um, I, me- I remember I pushed out a little bit because the feeling that comes over you is, is quite disconcerting and quite a very an alien feeling that starts to uh, descend over you after you exhale the first puff of, of vapour and then you're trying to, then I, I, they pushed me for a second one and then by the time I blew the second one out, things were starting to, my vision was starting to pixelate and I was feeling myself getting drowsy and, and they pushed me for the, they were pushing me for the third and I said no. And I and I and I laid down and what and I closed my eyes and then all of these I remember they were green and and red pyramids started to form in my vision and they would these pyramids were swirling around my vision but I was still aware that I was in my body I was, I was still aware that I was you know Luke Williams and I was at Loose Stone Studio and what happened then uh, I so I came out of it it only lasts five minutes I came out and I was like. Fuck wow, that was really that was really special. And then I gave it to Kim, and we all sort of the whole band, you know, yeah, we went one one person at a time, and the whole band did it, and Forrester did it, and then we went back for our second go, and it was the second go that I went right. I'm going to go for it, and I went. I got the third one 
in and then I I passed out and what happened then was the was the game changer. I went to this I entered I, I entered this room, this hypercolor room with with these fucking jester people. The, the best way I can describe them was they had the jester hats and they had these huge big smiles on their face and they were like they were saying, "Come, come with us, come with us," and they were sh- they, they were shooting me through wormholes and into these other rooms, and I'd enter these other rooms, and then this room would fucking collapse on itself, and then they'd go, "Quick, come with us," and then whew, I'd shoot off into this other room, and everything was just constantly changing, and this was all happening very fast. And as as I was having this experience, there was this this feeling of something really important was happening to me or whatever they were, whatever these images that I, that I was seeing that they were showing me that I, 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 I'm saying that they're rooms, but maybe they were actually not rooms. That's I'm sort of just putting it into my own framework. Do you know what I mean? Of what I can understand. Maybe this, what I was seeing was actually information in a visual form. And they, because I, I did, they just kept saying, look at this, look at this. And so I was looking and, I had this feeling like, wow, this is really important and you know what I mean? And so this happened, I would must have gone through 10 rooms and each was different and I came out of it, I guess, after about five or 10 minutes. It felt like I'd been gone for three hours because I asked the guys how long I'd been gone for and they're like, you got five minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, like I've just I've just – had a glimpse into this reality that I had no idea existed. And I've met these people and like some people will say, some skeptics will say like, these are hallucinations of your brain. You know, this is your synapses firing and you having these, you know, it's just all in your own head. But it's, I mean, when you're in there and you, this feeling that you have is like, you can't, des- you can't describe it to anyone. Like I'm saying these words to you now, but, it, the the feeling that I had in there was just uh, amazing, and it was like a religious experience. Like I'd I'd, I'd glimpsed. I, I I don't want to say God because that word's got so much baggage um, attached to it. But um, I witnessed something divine that night, or something far far greater than myself, than my human form. And yeah, that led to me down this rabbit hole of of self discovery after that night. So, so. Cool. That was that was a really really awesome story to listen to <laughs> okay. as well. This this is just something that uh, the more I learn about it, the more intrigued I am. Whether whether it be from a spiritual aspect or whether it be from a cynical or whatever aspect, I'm just curious about the whole thing because it doesn't mm. it doesn't matter. It it really doesn't matter whether it's real or whether it's not or whatever. All that matters is that it had a profound impact. Mm. It, Absolutely. And, so you're on your phone the next morning, just going through your contacts, just calling so- people, just calling people, going, "Fuck, have you heard of this stuff?" And no one had heard of it. Like that, this is 2010. Do you know what I mean? Like this is before Joe Rogan was talking about it, and before you know ayahuasca, which is the drinkable form of DMT, was um, was a big um, was a was like a big deal. Do you know what I mean? It was still kind of a little bit underground. I felt back then, or maybe it just was to me because I'd never heard of it, but it's still it definitely felt like it gained some momentum, you know, on the, on, are, on, on, on the internet after, after 2010. What are other things that were, were changed in, in your life after that? Oh, well, I mean, obviously because of how amazing the experience was, I was online, I was researching it. And then I found out that DMT, the, the most traditional way to take DMT is in ayahuasca, which is a, um, 
a South American uh, uh, tea, I guess it would best be described as this uh, it's a combination of two. Oh, there, you're drinking tea. This is that, a, I'm drinking ayahuasca <laughs> right now. Just really diluted ayahuasca. Um, <laughs> so it's the combination of two plants from the Amazon jungle, one called chacruna, one called, which is a leaf, which is where the DMT comes from, the other which is a vine, a creeper vine, which is called ayahuasca. And they boil these two, the leaf of one and the vine of the other, they boil them together and it makes it orally active in your stomach because otherwise you're if you just try to drink the if you just boiled the chacruna leaves and got the dmt if you drank it your stomach destroys um dmt on contact there's an enzyme in your stomach that destroys the dmt so what the vine does if the vine's got these uh these harmalines and these what they call maoese uh monoamine oxidase inhibitors which allow which switch off the enzyme in your stomach to, to let the DMT pass into your bloodstream through your stomach, right? So, yeah, um, it kind of, I found out about Ayah and then we ended up going to the jungle with with some of the band guys and Forrester and, and seeking out this tea and that was a whole nother uh, adventure and that of self-discovery, possibly more, and physical healing and emotional healing, that I couldn't get from the DMT smoking it. I got it from from the ayahuasca tea in the jungle. So I, I think everyone's sort of listening at this point about the jungle yeah. experience. What, what yeah. can you sort of shed light on? I've got a couple of mates who've done this, but no one's really uh, told me. About yeah. It. Okay. So you travel to Iquitos is the main, um, I guess, tourist hub for ayahuasca now in Peru. Travel to Iquitos. You get on a boat. You travel up river it's not it's not actually wasn't the amazon that we traveled up it was um a sort of uh an, an offshoot of the of the of the amazon we traveled up this river for about two hours in a boat and then we had to walk for another hour to get to this lodge this retreat which was um inside the retreat was this big central what they call maloka which is a big kind of thatched roof straw circular hut and we travel there and you've got to have a very strict diet. We had a strict diet leading up, which was no red meat, no coffee, no sex, um, no sugar, basically nothing that tasted good. And you weren't, you, you, you had to abstain from sexual activity. Um, and you go there and you get, um, the first day I can't, I'm going to, it's such a long process, but I'm trying to give you the bullet point form here. The first day we got there, we had what was called vomitivo where you drink, um, this herb water basically and make yourself vomit to clear out your stomach, to get your body ready for the medicine. Cause all, it's all about being clean and to, to receive the medicine and get the full benefits of this, um, of this work. So and they say the first day is vomitivo. Then the next day we, we went in, and we had a control dose, which was a half a small cup. And you drink the half small cup. This is just to see if everyone is fine with the medicine and no one's going to have a physical reaction to it or a mental reaction. So they give you a very small dose and nothing much happened on that night. And then the second night you're allowed to pick your own, your own dose. So me being the, the big brave Australian, this went straight for the big, the big cup, which was about, I think, close to 60, 60 mils of medicine, foul tasting medicine. Uh, uh, the first time I drank it, I remember it thinking it tasted like a shit Vegemite, shit liquidy Vegemite. 
that um, in subsequent drinks, I uh, kind of lost the Vegemite vibe for me and just uh, ended just up tasting, just tasting like shit. But um, <laughs> the, yeah, so this first big night, um, I had the first big cup and then we, you go, you sit down, everyone, you go up individually and then everyone comes out and these, there's about 30 of us all sitting around this this thatched roof hut, the Maloka, and then they, the, the, all the lights go down. This happens at night time. And then you sit in silence, in meditation with your intention of what you want to work on, what you want to receive from the medicine. And then you sit there for about 45 minutes, it feels like, depending. And then the shamans all start to, you start to hear the, the singing, the soft singing comes in and the, they start to sing what's called Icaros, which is their, their medicine songs. And um, you're eventually allowed, if you want more medicine, to go up and receive some. So I remember thinking after about an hour and a half, oh, I'm not, I'm not feeling the effects of this. I want more. Being the big, brave Australian that I, I was, went and had another big cup and um, went and sat down and on my mat again. And after about five minutes, I started to feel the first one. And I'm like, oh, oh hang on. And I didn't realize at the time that my body actually takes quite a long time to process ayahuasca. So I just, uh, what had just happened is I just in, essentially overdosed myself without realizing it at the time. I kind of had an inkling that I'd done the, maybe done the wrong thing when five minutes after I sat down, I could start to feel the first one coming. And then, so what happened that night was this steam, I ended up getting steamrolled by the medicine into like once the second one had fully come and, and kicked in, it ended, ta- ended up taking me through past life regression stuff, showing me things that had happened in other lives. And it was like really heavy. It wasn't a pleasant experience at all. I'm not going to lie. It was actually quite terrifying going through it. I ended up, I ended up out on the dirt by the end of it, naked, just, just begging for it to stop. I remember. Um, but, um, so that was my introduction to the medicine was a very scary night of, of past life regressions and what actually unfolded over the next 12 days. I don't want to spend too much time on it was this cathartic was, a without me realizing it, I'd gone to Peru to, um, address, uh, parental issues that I had trauma from my upbringing with my mother in particular. And it just kept showing me things about my relationship with my mother. And I had no idea. And it just kept every night, just kept pushing it onto me and saying, you, you've got trauma from your upbringing. You need to face this. I'm going to keep showing you and you're going to make peace with your upbringing. So my whole trip into Peru essentially was about, was about my mother and my upbringing and it was great. Like every, and every day, every day after you drink, you'll share your experiences with the group and that's another cathartic experience. You verbalizing your experiences and I've, I've, most days I'll be breaking down in tears explaining stuff about my mother and it was like it was fucking heavy like and my you know i wasn't the only person having you know a hard time i wouldn't say it's a hard time it's confronting but you know it's you know that it's good for you do you know what i mean you're shifting you saw like i use the the analogy of you're popping uh and like a spiritual zit you're just getting rid of this fucking you know thing that you don't want there anymore Basically, that's what's happening, and you're releasing off all of this. This what what is if you think of the trauma as as pus, and you just fucking it's just squeezing it out of you. And every night you're just you're putting it in the bucket. You have buckets, so you'll vomit 
and you'll you'll shit and you just you're just getting this out of your system and it's, and it's absolutely fantastic, but it's work. They call it the work because it's not, it's not a pleasure ride. If you're going there to think that you're going to have this amazing, wow, man, I'm having such a great time here, like trippy experience. Yeah. You're in for a rude shock because it's, it's going to sometimes, um, feel not very nice at all. Cause, uh, you're going there to get rid of things that don't serve you anymore. And that's, um, that doesn't feel nice when you're getting rid of those. I think because some sometimes those things, like these energies in your body that are there, or these traumas, they don't want to leave because they're a part of your identity. Do you know what I mean? And like that's where you're sort of based. You know, our identities are based around things that have happened to us in the past. So sometimes, even if they're negative things, we still that's part of our identity. So sometimes, when the medicine's trying to extract these out of you and get get rid of them because they're not serving you, that's a scary thing because it's like, whoa, that's part of my identity. Who am I going to be after I get rid of this? So you know, it's it can be very confronting, and but it's ultimately for your for your own good. What's the mm. what's the I mean, that's a really, really cool story. I think there's probably going to be a lot of people who are very curious to know what happens after that. What happens when you get home? I came home and immediately called my mum and and, um, connected with her in a way that we'd never connected before. I came home and just, I sat her down and I said, this is what happened to me in Peru. This is how I feel. I feel like you were not there for me when I was a child. You emotionally abandoned me. Like, it was fucking heavy, dude. Like, I had to come home and verbalise this all to my mother. And I said, but I forgive you for it, you know? And it was like a beautiful moment in our in our connection. And she broke down and I broke down. And, you know, because you've got to come home and you've got to integrate these things. You can't just keep it inside. You know, they, they always talk about when you do the work with the integration of bringing it back into your life. So... You have to address these issues in the real world. You can't just address them in the, the ether. You've got to bring them back to the um, to the here. And so, yeah, I did that with mum and, fuck it, it changed our relationship for the better. And we've always since then had a more open and understanding and loving relationship. Um, yeah, so that was... that was fucking amazing. But, I mean, since then, since Peru, I've done it in Australia and it... It hasn't really addressed the um, the mother thing ever again. Like there was, that's all Peru was about, but Australia has been about other things in my life. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of feels like I dealt with that thing in Peru and I got rid of it, whatever mm. was bringing me down. So yeah, Australia's just now been other things to work on. Which we you know we've all got a myriad of things that we carry throughout our lives of traumas, you know, that happen to us. And when I say traumas, like just like emotional traumas. You know, like it can be as small as, you know, something that you said to your best friend one day and that you had a fight about and you'll always regret that thing that you said. Like that will be a trauma that's that will be with you if you don't, if you never address it with your friend, this thing that you said to them, that'll always be with you. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So did it's the, like it's... Did, did that sort of um, realisation help dynamics in every aspect of your life? Yeah, that's um that was one of the things that it, like the the clearing of my of my um of my spirit helped lead me into like in taking better care of my actual physical body. Do you know what I mean? Because it it gave me a deeper uh, self awareness of how uh of how my body is just a vessel for my spirit, but I want this I want this spirit to have the best chance it can in in the best body, you know, the best body. Do you know what I mean? 
Like this, this I feel like this is just my opin- opinion, or, or the best analogy that I can that I've heard is just your body's like a car. Like you know, you aren't your your car, but you, you like your car to be reliable, right? Like you want to know that you can get to work every day and that your car's going to take you places and not fucking break down. So that's kind of what you you want your body to be like that. Like you want your body to be fit and healthy and to carry you where you need to go. And with with um with what we do with being musicians, yeah, you definitely needed to be working to do your job. Like if if I had ligament pain or muscle pain or or you know anything that inhibited me from from doing this physical work, then I'd be kind of screwed. So yeah, it definitely leads to an awareness of that. I think most I think most people that do this that do plant medicines they would have the same thing they would realize that their body is a, is a is a sacred sacred thing and they need to take care of it you know because I think I think I think living a spiritual life like people talk about um, spirituality um, it's just uh, all it is is trying to live an optimum life really it's like trying to be the best version of yourself that you can be it's not trying to be like whoa man I want to see fucking rainbow coloured unicorns and aha uh-huh, everything's rat like rad it's not it's not like that like spiritual people don't most most of the people that i know in in these new age circles don't talk like that they're just real people but they just want to they just want to live the best version of themselves that they can and that includes taking care of your body do you know what i mean and treating your body well but you got to take care of your your mind i mean if you got to you can't have one without the other really you can't have a poor mental health but like just be jacked like just this ripped dude that comes out of the gym but he's just like he's got an emaciated ego because he's all about the physical body do you know what i mean you've got to have the grounded sort of mental state to i think have a um to to live a a, well the the, the existence that i want to live is is one that's grounded in both mental and physical do you know what i mean um so yeah how do you how do you practice that i mean this will lead to something else, but in, in your day to day, what is mm. what is happening that that helps you treat yourself as well as you should be treated? Do you mean do you mean physically or, or mentally? Both. Or both for both. sure. Well, yeah, I'm definitely taking care of myself physically by by exercising and trying to eat as as well as I can when I'm when I'm at home. Mentally, uh, I'd like to say I I meditate. Um, I don't really meditate. I've been doing the Wim Hof method. Oh, cool! Is like, it working for you? It is working for me, and I mean, they 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 definitely call that a meditation. I mean, it's just, it's a breathing, um, a breathing meditation, if you will. Like it's 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 breath work. What it's what I call breath work, but some people call it a meditation. So, correct um, me if I'm wrong on this, but Wim Wim Hof also has a whole bunch of. It's sort of arbitrary, but he has a whole bunch of world records for saying does- the longest time submerged in ice water. He does, yeah, yeah. Uh, hour fifty-two, I think, is his standing record without 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 getting without getting hypothermia. Yeah, like I mean, a, a normal person, I think, would go into hypothermic shock after about ten to twenty minutes in ice in the in the kind of waters that he's submerging himself in. But he's going. He's done an hour fifty-two just with his like his. So his method is breath work and cold cold therapy. Um, I'm not really doing the cold therapy. I'm just doing the breath work. I think one day I might implement the cold, the cold into it. I'm going to start working up to cold showers in the morning. 
Um, so basically, uh, his 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 method is his breath work is like hardcore um, inhalation, exhalation for two and a half minutes. Oh, is it like the? And then, is it the one that's like? Yeah, it's that one. Can you do it again? Yeah. <laughs> like you're trying to make yourself hyperventilate. What you're essentially doing is hyperoxygenating your body and your cells. And then after two and a half minutes, uh, you exhale and you push all of the air out of your lungs and you just sit there with no air in your lungs. But because you're so oxygenated, you can sit there for a lot longer than you normally would be able to. Uh, and then you sit there until you get the overwhelming urge to gasp air in. And then you take, I take three deep breaths in and then you hold it for 10 seconds. Try and make your face go red by pushing you know, you know, have you ever seen Chris Farley, the comedian, do that thing where he makes his face go red? <laughs> so you're trying to push the oxygen up to your head, and that you do that three times, and that's basically the Wim Hof method. You know, without me going too in depth to it, or breaking copyright um, or something. I'm sure someone would trademark yeah, the explanation. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yes, and I'm doing that. So I mean, that's kind of that's definitely leading to a better mental state. That's but that's a physical thing mostly for me. Mm. Is trying to because that's a big alkalizer of the system. I'm trying to stay as alkalized as I can. Do you do these yeah, things just, before shows? Uh, I, I do breath work. I don't go, I don't do the hardcore Wim Hof before, before shows, but I'll do, I do do breath work for it to try and oxygenate myself, to calm myself down. Mm. Sometimes the adrenaline can get my heart rate up. Not that I'm nervous, but I think it's the adrenaline pushing my heart rate up before shows. Um, to calm that down because I want to be as sort of mellow and centred as I can for mm. shows. You know, we were talking before about being present and not thinking. I just want to be kind of relaxed and calm and letting everything flow through me. Do you have other sort of practices um, separate to meditation? I'm sort of trying to structure these for my own life as well. So this is more like right. a, a personally asked question too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, stretching. I do a lot of stretching. It's not yoga. I don't class what I do as yoga. It's not super structured, but I'll, I stretch a lot. I've always stretched a lot ever since I was a kid. Before, Actually, before all of my drum practices when I was a kid, I, I would have to stretch. Otherwise, I couldn't play for some reason. Like it was this little routine that I got into. So I'd, what would happen when I was young? I'm talking 14, 15, is I'd smoke weed because that was a great tool for helping me study back then. Not that I don't really smoke weed at all anymore, but back then I'd smoke weed and then I'd, I'd do a half an hour yoga. I guess it was more yogurish when I was a kid. And then I'd go and play and I'd find that that would just put me into a much better um, sort of zone for, for practising. Now it's not as it's nowhere near as regimented as when I was a kid, which is weird. Um, but I still stretch too because I get middle back problems. I think it must oh. have something to do with the drum. So I've really got to stretch my spine and shoulders and stuff. So right, even now that I just said that, I've just sat up straight. Let's do it. Let's and get my, some in. My my, my posture just improved itself dramatically. Just talking about it then, but um, yeah, it's basically that. I'm not too hardcore on the on the on physical um, work, like I'll run and walk the dog and, you know, I spin poi. Do you know what poi is? It's the the fire on the on the chains. Like, yeah, it's the balls that you spin. I do that. So that keeps me 
That keeps me super fit as well. It's a bit taxing on the shoulders though. So again, I've got to make sure my shoulders are always stretched so I'm not pulling because it's very shoulder intensive mm. spinning. So yeah, I don't really, it'd be, it'd really fuck me off if I had something that stopped me from doing these things that I love, you know, like last night, for example, I had a little wrist twinge in my left wrist. Like I'd picked things up and it was hurting. So instantly I just went to my stretches and, this morning it seems to be gone. So I think you've got to listen to your body, right? You've got to, if something's hurting, don't push it. You, you know, if you're on your, say, if I'm playing um, and something's hurting, I'll just either change my technique or I'll just, I'll have to stop playing that day. I'm not going to push through the pain because that can, I've seen some of my friends have pushed it too far and they, they pay the price. Like, guy who comes to mind is Mike Mallion from the band. He was in Monuments uh, from the UK um, and he's just had a terrible run with physical Allen's. And I think back in the day he just used to push through with his drumming um, and I think his wrists really, I think it was his wrists that um, ended up fucking out quite hard and led to him having having to have six months off playing, do you know what I mean? And that would just mm. destroy me. Yeah, I had I'm, to do that. So. I'm there. I've got a double crushed ulna. I've been a seeing a, a double crushed. So it impacts at the top and the bottom of my ulna nerve. So oh my it's, God. it's actually irritated uh, for the first time in five months today. So it's I, I very much understand that. Like I'm still going to do guitar practice because it's all right hand based. And it's interesting you say monuments because we met up with those guys over there um, in, yeah. in Leeds, I, I think, and Euroblast too. Okay, and, sure. And was that the same drummer? No, Mike hasn't been with Monuments for a while, but when I met him, he was in Monuments. Um, I'm not sure who's playing. I think Anup Sastry was playing for Monuments for a while. I think they might even have another guy on drums. Got it. Now, so, yeah. So I sort of, I, I kind of want to have a, an ultimate question with this one. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I sort of loathe these, what would you tell yourself when you were younger sort of questions because it's a bit loaded. Mm. But sure. I think, what would you, if, if you were about to meet you pre-first DLC tour or something like that, what sort of tour advice would you be able to give them in order to come out the other end feeling confident and and optimised? Tour advice? Oh, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question to answer. I um. I don't think I've really done anything on tour that's detri- been too detrimental to myself. Um, I mean, I'd like to say I'd tell myself to drink less, but that's that's half the fun I, I have when on tour is, 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 is having drinks and and partying. But, um, yeah, I, I, it'd be to eat better, but then, you know, walking the walk is <laughs> and, talk, and, and talking the talk is, 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 is different. It's a whole different ball game, but yeah, I really don't know how to answer that question. I don't know what advice I would give myself back back then. It'd probably be maybe to sleep more, sleep more. Although I've, I, you know, because I'm a I'm a good sleeper. I've always I've always had a, a skill at sleeping, but um, I guess back in the day, maybe when I started touring, I wasn't quite. Oh, I felt I didn't need to sleep as much, but yeah. It's definitely an important part. Well, I think everyone should very quietly say thanks, Luke, to themselves. 
<laughs> Hopefully everyone's done that. And um, now let's um, pretend like I'm hanging up a phone call, but really we're just going to have a quick gossip. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this particularly lovely conversation with Luke. Just an extra shout out to Luke for sending me some of his awesome electronic deliciousness. In case you're wondering what that track was, uh, yet to be released as far as I know. And I'm um, very much looking forward to it. You can follow Luke on Instagram at Luke Williams Drummer. And you can follow me down the street if you want. Or on Instagram, The Major Lift Podcast. <laughs>